0: Welcome to the IWIB Female Factor Podcast. For the month of March, we are celebrating the history of women during this month, and for that, we have remarkable guests that will share their stories and will share their wisdom with us. So, welcome everyone to listening in. Happy International Women's Day. Today, we're going to talk about International Women's Day in the artificial intelligence era. For that, we have the honor to welcome Professor Dr. Mireille Hildebrandt as our guest speaker. She's a professor of Interfacing Law and Technology in the Law Faculty in Brussels, and professor of Smart environments, Data Protection, and the Rule of Law at the Science Faculty of Radboud University in the Netherlands. She's also a co-founding co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of cross disciplinary Research in Computational Law. Even though Professor Hildebrandt does not believe in fixed identities and does not identify as a feminist herself for the same reason, she believes it is crucial that in a day like today, International Women's Day, we advocate that women participate in the development of resistance against and for a proper integration of artificial intelligence. Professor Minele, welcome to the IWIB Talks and Podcast.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Thank you for taking the time. I know you're a very, very busy person. We are going to have the questions that, you know, the talking points that we were discussing when I approached you first, because I approached you to to you know to ask you if you will be interested in perhaps discussing artificial intelligence with a group of women uh, of business women from a network in Sweden that will be celebrating International Women's Day and the first thing you told me was that you were not a feminist so can, can you please elaborate on that given fact that International Women's Day is typically celebrated by feminists all around the world. What is it that you believe? Because you said you don't believe in fixed identities. Yes. 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 So please can explain for those, especially in Sweden, that are so proud of calling themselves feminists. I am a positive feminist. I have learned to say that because I was not a feminist when I moved to Sweden from, from the US and from Colombia. But now I have to say I'm a positive feminist. So please explain.
1: Um, what is, we were just talking about technology and now my printer is having its recalibration moment. So if you hear all kinds of noises, it will soon disappear. I'm sorry. Um, yes, so I think you, you invited me as a, as a feminist and then my reply was, well, though I don't identify. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Uh, And I remarked, I don't identify as a feminist, but um, I am, of course, very aware that uh, women in very different situations have to work much harder and show much more to achieve the same as uh, men. And then uh, you were surprised that I say I don't identify as a uh, a feminist. So I think it's very nice if I get a chance to explain what I mean with that. For me, uh, identifying as a woman, um, let alone as a feminist, uh, which can mean so many things at this moment, because on the side of uh, science, academia, there's a lot of feminist theory in very different directions. So saying I'm a feminist uh, wouldn't mean anything to me because it it goes into so many different directions. So I have this feeling that um, both women have certain masculine dimensions in themselves men have feminine dimensions in themselves maybe it's more like a spectrum and because of what society expects of us because of our biological makeup which can be much more complex than either male or female biologically there uh, as we all know there are three different ways uh, at this moment to identify somebody as such so I have this feeling I'm not defined by being a woman. I very much believe in diversity, the importance of diversity. And I uh, sort of like the work of Crenshaw, who wrote a long time ago about intersectionality, highlighting that being a white person and a woman differs from being a
0: So you were saying that you don't identify, just you, know, you, you acknowledge diversity.
1: Yes, so for me, it's more important to acknowledge different types of diversity and not to pin people down, not to think that women are more necessarily more interesting or better or anything like that. Um, I also see a connection with uh, what is often called identity politics. So the idea that people belong to different groups and are sort of defined by that. So I don't want to be defined by other people as belonging to a certain group. And that's why I'm a little bit resistant. I also see that um, not only feminism, but other types of identities. I see a lot of anger building up. And often that anger is is justified, is right, and is productive. But sometimes I have the feeling that that anger is connected with a choice to behave as a victim. And I don't want to behave as a victim. I think it's not a good idea. Um, So I feel that sometimes people get addicted to their own anger Mm -hmm. and to what they have learned to be and to behave like a victim. And I sort of take the opposite position. So I, for instance, very much like Eleanor Roosevelt's statement or whoever else said it because we don't really know, um, well-behaved women seldom make history. Uh, I, I, I like that, I think it's uh, it's interesting, but it doesn't mean we always have to be um, badly behaved. Sometimes we have to do that because otherwise there's no way we're going to be able to make our point, right? Yes. Um, yeah
0: the good girl kind of uh, yes. thing that is so rejected here in Sweden especially. So now let's move on to our main focus tonight, which is International Women's Day in the art, in the era of artificial intelligence. Um, there is this word, this buzzword, everyone talks about ethical AI. In my opinion, as we were discussing the other day, There is no one side fits all when it comes to ethics. And and, and I kind of gave you my my insights and what I was coming from. But I would love to to have to to understand for you, what, what would you say to those that promise to implement ethical AI in their solutions and products? And there are many entrepreneurs in this network. So what is it that they will be have to be mindful of, or will they have to start demanding to their data scientists that they implement ethical AI? What is your intake on that?
1: Yeah, so that again opens a Pandora's box. So there are many answers. So you just cut me off when you think, okay, this is enough right? because I might <laughs> go different directions. So first of all, people who talk about ethical AI frighten me because it suggests that AI is an agent, that AI itself is capable of being ethical or not. And I think that's certainly not the case. Maybe it will at some point be the case, I have no idea. But I think most people that um, work on developing AI who are serious, who look at the theoretical foundations and how it operates at this moment, uh, would agree that this is not within uh, the coming time period. So AI itself cannot be ethical. AI systems are developed by human beings. And uh, what is so interesting is that the development of, for instance, a machine learning system, a system based on machine learning, which is one of the core methodologies to develop AI at this moment. It used to be a different one, but now it is machine learning. If you want to develop a machine learning system, there uh, is a whole series of design decisions that you have to take. And um, you can't have it all, which means that those design decisions have certain trade-offs. That's simply inevitable. Sometimes it's speed that uh, you have to trade against completeness, for instance. Uh, Much depends on what sort of data you want to train on, um, how many features you want to train on, uh, what your computational capacity has to be, etc. Now these trade-offs necessarily involve certain value choices, um, though they may be entirely implicit. Um, In the realm of computer science, uh, as a scientific discipline, those values may, for instance, be the idea of rationality, trumping everything else. So what we have to do is be rational. And uh, when we develop systems, they must be as efficient as possible. Now, for computer scientists, that may not even be uh, recognized as a value, but as something that is taken for granted. I would say that it is very important that we put our finger on where those values come in, point out that there are a lot of other values. Uh, In my opinion, efficiency is an instrument for effectiveness. So efficiency itself is not a goal. The goal should be to effectively achieve something and that something is the goal. And effectiveness is more important than efficiency. Um, Rationality can be understood in many different ways. So in a very abstract and sterile way, and it can also be understood in a more, I would almost say inclusive way. Um, And uh, that is why I think when people talk about uh, ethical AI, they often don't think that AI itself is ethical, but that when developing it, Researchers and developers have to try and foresee the implications of all these design decisions they make.
0: Yes, and this takes me to my next question. Then, yes. that would be um, you. In one of your books, you said that ethics may be decided by tech developers or behind closed doors of boardrooms in corporate, you know, business enterprises. So, what are those issues? or questions that women sitting on those boards, as the many members that we have here that are part of uh, boardrooms, should be asking or addressing in their um, company's AI agenda. What would you say to female entrepreneurs when hiring coders and data scientists uh, to develop their products? Yeah, Shall okay. they recruit the mostly women? Shall they eh, be biased basically in, 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 in the people that would be working with, with them? Because, you know, yeah. It's, it's, it's um dilemma.
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing is to uh, watch out for snake oil. And what do you so PR is very <clears throat> successful sometimes because it is really good, because it is effective and it does good things. But it's also very effective because of the PR. Mm. And um, in that line, to be able to distinguish between snake oil Oil and a lot of other things, I think it is very important to to hire computer scientists, data scientists who are aware of the limits, the limits of what computing systems can do and cannot do. And uh, in a position of the board, that means one is capable of strategic thinking, not just taking individual decisions. I think it is good To always force the people that work with AI, or that decide to purchase AI systems, to always ask them three questions, or to invite them to to answer three questions. And the first question is, what problem are we trying to solve? Not the problem that a computer scientist happens to be able to solve, that's not our interest. Do we have a problem that we want to solve? And is that the problem that this system can solve? So that's the most important question. And actually it's two questions. So what problem is solved and what problem is not solved? Because often the systems that are, that are offered that are pr that are marketed, solve problems that are not really a problem. Because the things that are a problem, they are very difficult to translate in, in computational code. So there's these two questions And the third question is, and it's as important as the first two questions, what problem is this system going to create? So even if a system solves a problem, because it will be implemented into an existing environment, a lot of other things in that environment will start moving. And that might be your personnel, that might be your clients, your supply chain, Um, And that movement might might create so many other problems that you will undoubtedly be then trying to solve by getting more AI system, because that will be the narrative of people who want to sell you the stuff. Uh, You get into deeper and deeper problems. So um, there is a question whether that means you have to hire women. Yeah. Um, Will there be that bias already? I, I think that women are um, um, in a sense, those three questions are very practical questions. So they're not questions about does this scale and is it efficient? Hmm? That's the two questions that um, if I didn't dislike labels so much, <clears throat> I would be tempted to say, these are very masculine questions. Does it scale? Are they efficient? Women will be more practical and say, yeah, it scales, but what this system scales is not what we want to scale. We want to scale something else. And it certainly is not going to scale that. It's going to cause a lot of trouble there. So um, it may be that it's good to um, look for women for that reason, it may be. But I think the most important thing, if you are trying to get your finger behind what is the sort of AI that is good for your company, that diversity again is very important. So diversity, make sure that within your company, there are different voices that disagree with each other because that will make your company robust. Mm. And that would mean that hiring people who tell you that they will solve all your problems by uh, bringing in all sorts of AI system is not a good idea get different people, people that love AI, that get enthusiastic, that are good, that have a good track record and get people that are more skeptical Mm. and and push them against each other. Uh, And I think that will have uh, a lot of, uh, that will make your company more robust.
0: This brings me to my next question then, and this is, um... I, I didn't say that at the beginning, but you have also an anthropologist degree, or at least you have been educated within anthropology. From your perspective as an anthropologist, if we were to compare AI developed by men only, and AI developed by women only, how different would this solution will be? I mean, more, more, <laughs> more effective, more inclusive, or women will be overanalyzing everything or, less risk takers uh, as women are supposed to be, uh, will
1: that affect? Yeah, my my concern is that um, thinking that AI developed by women only um, will have all these wonderful qualities that are often attributed to women. So my problem sits very much in the idea that women are, for instance, soft and inclusive and caring and non-ambitious and modest. And I don't know if women are like that. Maybe they have been socialized like that, but (laughs) we should not necessarily perpetuate that. So I believe women have a lot of talents and I can imagine those talents are necessarily not always the same as men. So again, I feel, no, we shouldn't have AI developed only by women. But of course, the reality at this moment is that AI is developed by men. And based on that, I would say, yes, please hire women. And I could, based on that, um, that so obvious fact, I could even imagine people saying, okay, I'm going to have a company with only women developing AI and the best, the best. Mm. Um, And I would be very curious what comes out of that. I'm not so sure that all these wonderful terms that we use to describe women um, apply to women. In my experience, women are often more practical than men. So this is again, the scaling and efficiency and high levels of abstraction. So if the world was like we now assume, then if we apply this or that system to it, everything will scale and be efficient. And a woman will say, oh, okay, that sounds great. But since all the assumptions don't fly, maybe we should go for something else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's an asset huh, to have women. And also think that women are often more professional. They're more focused on content than on their ego. Mm-hmm. And oh, I, that's I, nice
0: it, to hear. It. I haven't heard that before.
1: That's... And yes, and of course, it's so dangerous to say that because we all know that women can also have an ego and be very mean. Right. So, yeah. but I do find, for instance, very often that in a meeting, men are very busy uh, with their own territory, with um, interrupting people and making themselves heard. And women are some, sometimes sitting there be surprised, like, I thought we were gonna talk about this. Mm-hmm. And now they're off in that direction. And we also notice that they have already discussed everything before, that they're just trying to push something. I thought we were here for content. So in that sense, I believe women are more professional. Mm-hmm. Then of course, women are often much more ambitious. Why? Because we have to work 10 times harder to get the same achievement to get credit. So I think women being practical, not buying snake oil, saying, oh, okay, usually interesting, but women being more professional, focused on the content because they know they have to deliver something that is really effective. And then women being more um, effective because they're more ambitious. Uh, they, they can't take for granted that they will rise to the top because that does not happen. Um, I think these are all great reasons to, to involve women, for instance, also into the strategy of a business, so right? to,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah. Yeah, okay, that's really good.
0: And then, as, uh, as the last question within this talk, so we open up then, uh, you know, the, the floor for, for, for questions from our members. My last question to you before we do the live podcast and before we take the questions will be When should women resist or oppose AI? How? What will be the legal sources that they will have if they want to oppose a solution that is harmful or that they, you know, it was unintentional? Uh, I I don't want to make many questions in, in one question,
1: but when should they resist or oppose AI? Um, yeah, so I will try to push many answers <laughs> <for> <laughs> something. So I think that, um, when you look at these systems, the, many of them are skewed against, um, enabling women to develop their talent. And that can be because the data on which algorithms are trained are skewed themselves, because at this moment, women have less of a chance to develop their talents. So, so then the data is skewed and that will ripple through the system. But there is something else. Some people think it's all about the data, but most of these systems have to be labeled. That means that the data has to be qualified, uh, as for instance, applying to, imagine if you want your uh, daughter to uh, get permission to be, uh, to get uh, access to a certain type of education that can be basic school, it can be high school, it could also be university. Um, and imagine if there is a procedure before that where an algorithm basically is going to make the first decision. If that algorithm uh, has been trained on skewed data, then it might be in the interest of that school or university to not accept girl students uh, when they apply for certain types of, uh, certain levels of education, because they will think if we do that, the algorithm will tell them uh, your success rate, your performance as a school will go down, right? And that's not only because of the data, but also because of the labeling that happens. So in machine learning, basically what you're doing is you first have to tell the system, if you see this data, um, it means uh, people are going to be very successful here in school. If you see that data, people are going to not be successful. And as you can understand, it's much more complex than that. All sorts of different features like age, uh, sex, gender, Uh, previous results, all sorts of things feed into that. But those labels are chosen by the developer of the system. Mm -hmm. And it might be that the labels that are relevant for women are not chosen. On top of that, after the developer has chosen those labels, they will invest in a group of people that have to by hand apply those labels to the data set. And they might not entirely understand what the developer of the system told them to do. So they will be in the end, people who actually do the labor of labeling. Now all that together and a lot more can result in output that basically continues or exacerbates um, bias against women. And this can also be about recruitment, etc. Now your question is, what can we do about that? That's a very difficult question, but um, as a lawyer, I do believe it's very important that women get their act together by uh, by way of, for instance, collective action, by way of using the possibilities that the GDPR offers, but also other types of collective actions like tort actions, um, and uh, try to. To, to use the law to get these biases out in the open, to make them debatable. Um, and it's, it's not easy, but it's very important.
0: I was going to say that, uh, well, bef- before, I, I will do the disclaimer that we're not offering legal advice to anybody listening. Um, and second of all, going back to the GDPR, I think many people that understand how useful GDPR is in cleaning. You know what is the data that they are getting to be compliant with GDPR. You really need to know and understand what that what data you're collecting, right? So understanding that maybe through GDPR, people can have um, you know can use that as a, as a as a as a mean to to you know to to get their rights protected you know, as you mentioned, you mentioned, people can have an injunction, you know, through through GDPR. And, and I think not many people will understand the relationship between GDPR and AI.
1: Yeah, so uh, I think there is a narrative, uh, perhaps from big tech, but also from some people in uh, policy circles that the GDPR is old fashioned and we have to change it because it doesn't understand machine learning and machine learning is great. Well. Yes, machine learning is great if it's good, but it's not necessarily great because it is called machine learning. And the GDPR basically has some requirements like the fact that whoever um, processes personal data has to uh, clarify the purpose, Mm -hmm. which restricts things and means you have to take a step back and think, is it really necessary for this system to process all that data? And that is very good for the methodological integrity of these systems. So I don't think it is obstructing the development of AI. I think it will contribute to more reliable AI. And then there is this famous article 26, which says if an automated decision is applied to you and it has a uh, significant effect on you, then by default that's prohibited. There are some exceptions, but then you uh, must be able to be heard Um, and you must be able to object, Um, I think. And then of course they have to explain uh, how the system came to its conclusion. I think that's also very important. It raised um, a flood of literature about what explaining machine learning could possibly mean. My position is if a court, if a judge, tells me I'm going to sentence you to 20 years in jail. And I say, okay, you have to now explain to me um, why you did that. And then the court said, well, I have this algorithm and I'm now going to show you all the mathematics because this is all about mathematics. And then it's fine. My position is, and of course, all lawyers position is that explains the algorithm, but it doesn't justify the court's decision. And to justify that decision, you simply need to uh, look into the criminal code and see whether it's possible to actually uh, convict me. So the reasons cannot be well, the algorithm, which I have now just explained, says that you should go to jail. So there is a difference between having this um, stuff explained, which I think can be very important also to be able to justify Um, but in law what counts is a justification. And um, I work a lot with computer scientists and the concept of justification for a computer scientist is a mathematical concept. It has nothing to do with what lawyers mean when they talk about justification. And what I do not want is that we all try to speak the same language because then we will all commit treason to our own discipline But lawyers must learn that when a computer scientist says that they have now justified the decision of the system, they are not thinking in terms of a legal justification. They are just explaining it and saying that the explanation is reliable. Um, And computer scientists should not think that when the law requires a justification, that the law requires a causal explanation because um, the court has to, for instance, uh, let's take a tort action. The court has to decide that there was wrongful behavior, that um, the wrongful behavior actually caused the damage, that there was damage, and that uh, the wrongful behavior can be attributed to the tort, uh, And these are all conditions, um, they're not causes. Mm. And whether these conditions apply or not must be justified by the court. And that's something else than explaining what the natural language processing algorithm did. That's fascinating, but it's not uh, reasoning. Yeah,
0: it is. Thank you so much, Professor. Um, Now we will open up for questions and I will pause right now. Professor Virele, thank you so much for such an interesting presentation and for addressing the questions of our um, listeners today. So now let's go to the second part of this event tonight on international women's day in the era of AI. And this will be the podcast part. I would like to know what is it, the journey that you took since you were in, I don't know, high school and then what took you to study law to now be the professor and the expert that you are in artificial intelligence. Let's start by where were you born, and how was that journey? Uh,
1: so I'm, I'm Dutch. I was born in uh, The Hague, in the Netherlands. Um, and when I was in high school, I was considering to study um, uh, anthropology, philosophy, theology, and psychology. And there, there were four. And actually, I wanted to study all of it. But um, well, one has to limit oneself. Um, in the end, I decided to study anthropology, and um, uh, I studied that actually for quite a short time. It was somewhere in the, in the 70s, end of the 70s, and it was a very specific time in the last century. So we all read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which was a, like a cult book. And many of the people actually that I know of my year in anthropology who read that book dropped out because of the content of that book. Like, why are we investigating all this? What is science, blah, blah, blah. Um, I didn't particularly drop out, but because of uh, personal circumstances, I did stop with anthropology at that time. And I went to um, India, to a part of India Um, to visit my, uh, what would later be my parents-in-law. And I was very young, I was uh, 19 or 20, and um, um, the experience of coming from the Netherlands, which is a very, um, everything is ordered, it's a welfare state, Um, uh, people have very uh, clear ideas about how to take care of each other, what the state should do. Um, what the world looks like. Uh, I I was a very European person. And then suddenly you find yourself on the other side of the world, where people speak um, generally three, four languages fluently and neither of those four languages you can understand, not a word, you can't even distinguish when they speak what language many of the things people do in their everyday life at that point were very different from what I had experienced uh, of how I was raised. People often ask me, where are you from? I said, "Uh, Holland. And then they said, what is Holland? Then I said, Amsterdam. And then they said, oh, Scandinavia, because to them it was all the same. And if I try to explain, no, 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 it's Mm -hmm. different, they say, yeah, of course. So what happened is um, my perspective on the world, my being in the world was decentered. Mm. So obviously everybody was born and raised somewhere has a center. To, for me that was the Netherlands and I didn't know it. You don't know that the center of the world is where you're born until you leave that place. And if you leave it radically by, uh, Uh, going to uh, your parents-in-law and then living with them in a world that was really different. Um, They were extremely hospitable, nice and knowledgeable people Uh, but I saw that many of the things that I had taken for granted were different. And of course I had already studied anthropology for uh, some time. So it didn't really surprise me but it's different to learn about something than to learn something.
0: But were you working there? Were you depending on them? Or, or what was the, the, the part that, I guess the cultural shock of course, but was it something that directly affected your own beliefs
1: and values? I think it's sort of, um, it taught me that uh, many of the things that we take for granted um, have a specific reason in a specific setting If you leave that setting, there are other reasons to do other things. So it taught me, um, it's like you can speak English and you can speak French. And when you shift from English to French, your mindset changes. Mm -hmm. Now, switching between two languages that are both European languages um, already shows that actually you begin to perceive the world around you differently. And maybe people will see it when they see you speak like in French you might be. Um, <clears throat> so my mother went to a French school uh, and we always spoke Dutch, but sometimes she said something in French and I was always surprised at how. Suddenly she became very feminine and very light because she was a very serious woman and when she spoke French it was like. There was another, I had a second mother <laughs> and I really loved that second mother even though she didn't uh, practice it very much. So that's, that's a difference between two European languages. Now imagine going to a, another part of the world with really, uh, India of course has a, a great civilization which uh, is much older than European civilization. Um, but at this moment it's a, it's a very different, Everything in everyday life is different. Uh, And we are talking 70s. So we're also talking, uh, uh, of course, things have changed enormously since then. Um, What I learned is the value of the switch. So I didn't become Indian. I was never going to be Indian. I I didn't identify as being Indian. I could never because I was this huge pinkish white person. who didn't speak the language and who didn't behave as refined as my uh, environment. I, I'm Dutch, so I'm, I, I didn't have the refinement of the people there. So though some people may think, oh, you were the white privileged person. It was not at all like that. Um, my parents-in-law are from Goa, and uh, in Goa at that point, it was filled with hippies. So actually the Catholics, they were Catholic, they didn't like hippies. They thought hippies were um, slightly crazy. So when their son came home with this big white woman that everybody in their environment said, oh God, she's a hippie, he found a hippie. So, and they were always very respectful. So they said, I don't know what you're talking about to the others, anyway. What and I tried you were not a say, lawyer; that you were only studying anthropology back then. I, yes, I studied anthropology, nothing with law, nothing at all. So what I'm trying to say is, what this taught me is that I could never again look at my own um, culture as the way things are. You, you get a sensitivity to, well, that depends, and the switch from one culture to another, from one language to another is extremely enriching. It gives you a kind of agility um, that that is fantastic. Now, that's one. The second thing is that um, my husband, of course, was colored. So when I was in India, I had a certain experience of what it is like to be a big white woman (laughs) in a Catholic environment. When he came to the Netherlands, it was his experience, but also mine, of course, to see what happens if there is a, so he was slightly tall than I was Dark uh, colored of course, because he's Indian, not African, who enters the space of the Netherlands where everybody agrees that they are not racist. But of course, already then I, it was clear that people had all sorts of crazy expectate, like he was a violinist. And they thought, well, you know, why don't you play the drums? Because I'm sure you can play the drums very well, right? A violin, how funny, why do you want to play the violin? So all these well-meant, but for us, of course, horrible confrontations with uh, let's say prejudice, they um, they sort of they are the training set on what on which my brain has been trained. So you, you get a sensitivity to um, different ways of looking at the same thing. There was an incident where we traveled to the UK and where I could just walk through the border without any problem, just my passport, my being white, and he was held. His suitcase had to be opened, and he was refused entry. Um, And I was very young, I was extremely shocked. I couldn't understand um, one of the reasons why he was refused because he spoke BBC English. And he said, you're Indian, you can't speak BBC English. I'm sure you want to stay here. That's why we're going to refuse you entrance. So this showed me the force of the law that Uh, the law can decide these things, that a country can decide to either admit somebody or not admit somebody. And that, um, uh, to make long story short, um, my life is of course by now long, so I can tell you many stories, but I felt the force of the law, how important it is and how important it is to know how it operates to be able to protect people and to be able to also um, protect the robustness and resilience of democracy. I I don't think democracy survives without the rule of law. Um, And uh, well, then at some point I studied law. Um, When I was 16- you went
0: back to the UK or did you stay, you went back to the Netherlands but he was blocked entry, denied entry in the UK.
1: Yeah, so that was, um, later we came back from uh, India, we we came back to the Netherlands and we lived in the Netherlands, so. um, My my journey, I think, was the, the formative experience was being in a totally different world and seeing people who have a totally different mindset, but with whom I share their humanity, who are respectful, uh, who are in many ways more refined than uh, perhaps we are. Um, and the second thing to, to sense the force of the law. So you can't touch it, you can't see it, legal effect, but it structures society. And um, so I didn't study law to do good. I studied law to make a living. To take care of my children, and um, uh, also because by that time I found it interesting. So when I was sixteen, if somebody had said to me, "Why don't you study law?" I would have said,
0: oh. <laughs> Yeah, we were talking know. about it before. Yeah, what well, <laughs> make you study law? Yeah, so okay.
1: so the 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 confrontation with the reality of the law, that law is not social science, it's not a narrative. It has a real effect. That's what made me, Um, very interested in the law and um, uh, I still think um, the law is very important, but it has to be maintained Um, and of course it can be abused also in a systematic manner uh, against people. And when did you became a researcher? Because
0: you study law, you said to provide your family. Of course, it's a it's a profession that you know people will assume that you know you make good money when you when you're a lawyer. But when was the moment that you didn't go corporate law and that you decided to take the research part, academia part of the
1: law? I think that um I already wanted to be a scientist. I think I wrote in a little book when I was like um, eight or something like that. Um, and I, I think that more people have that sort of um, fantasies when they're young. But certainly when I started studying law, um, and obviously when I studied anthropology, um, this, this is something um, So to to go deeper into things and to um, get your finger behind what is obvious and uh, then to do very solid research. So to to do your homework like, um, and then to be able to come back and share that with others and learn how to Um, So I think I liked teaching very much um, and research. And in the end, I I do think that um, my focus on research and on writing, uh, so that's also, of course, sharing. um, um, uh, I I think it was with me since I was very young, so Mm -hmm. I was very happy that I got a chance because that's of course not obvious.
0: And you study law in the Netherlands? Yeah. And when was th- 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 that you made the PhD in law and philosophy? And why philosophy?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, again, because I think um, what interests me in law is, um, so my PhD was about punishment. It was about punishment and what happens when the state punishes people? And uh, because I love uh, anthropology, I, that, that thesis, that doctorate thesis consists of anthropology, legal history, um, and uh, philosophy uh, in the sense of epistemology. So questions about what is a legal norm? How is it different from a social norm? um what does a norm actually do so i always when i talk about law when i teach law to computer scientists i ask the question what does law do Mm. i try not to talk about law as if it's a you know a bag with rules but i try to show that just like code computer code actually changes something in our environment and pushes us into making certain decisions, choices, um, that the law does the same thing, but in a very different way. So this philosophical interest, um, I think it was there from when I was eight. So (laughs) again,
0: okay. And now before we end our podcast, let's go and talk a little bit about your project. The one that you were awarded uh, an advanced grant by the European Research Council. This cohubicol, you know, the counting as a human being in the era of computational law. I guess all these studies in anthropology and philosophy are coming very handy when you're doing this research. What is your main goal with the research? That'll be my last question before we go on to the women in your life that have made a positive impact in your life.
1: So the main goal is to help lawyers understand Um, the assumptions uh, that inform all the legal tech. So all these legal search technologies, which are AI, of course, uh, to a large extent, uh, in the 80s, we had um, a different type of legal technologies, uh, but they remained a niche. And at this moment, Mm -hmm. the publishers and things like Westlaw and LexisNexis, they all employ this. So Westlaw Edge, for instance, Keysight and all this stuff, That is what the project is about. I want to um, develop a framework that allows lawyers to understand what they buy into when they begin to use that search. What happens if the court uses it? Like in United States, the federal courts have a contract with Westlaw Edge. So they're using it. Big law is also using it. Um, Public prosecutor might be using it. That means that you put between yourself as a lawyer and legal text, you put a system that filters. So uh, some people call that distant reading. So lawyers are normally doing close reading, but we are moving towards a situation where lawyers will do a lot of distant reading. Mm -hmm. So the system does the big read, filter things and presents it to the lawyer. Now in that system, there are a lot of decisions that have been made when developing the algorithm that makes decisions. What is on your plate, the output, Um, and those decisions could have been taken differently and the output would have been different. So I'm very concerned how we become dependent on what is decided by developers, by a few lawyers that sit down with those developers. Uh, And in the end, of course, the law is what should protect individual citizens, what should empower individual de- citizens to develop the good life, to work, to begin a business, to um, uh, to, to uh, respect the, the dignity of their children, of their friends, of their family. What is going to happen if that layer comes between the lawyer and the text? Mm-hmm. And how can we Um, instead of going in there with blind trust and embracing anything that comes out and makes our life more easy, and without just ignoring it and saying, oh, it will never happen, or saying, I'm totally against that. We're not saying we're embracing it. We're not saying we're against it. We want to open it up and say, okay, here we must become more careful.
0: Yeah, and I am an addicted person to LexisNexis and Westlaw when I was in Chicago working. I mean, there was no lawyer in the law firm that will not use it, and even law students, you know, for us was like the Bible, yes, everything was there. Yeah. So, okay, well, I I will follow your, your research and, I you know, I, I really thank you for the time and you sharing your wisdom about AI and law and philosophy and anthropology. So to end the podcast, let's go to the women that, if there are any, the answer can be no as well, so that's fine. But are there any women in your life that have made a positive impact? That's what I call the
1: female factor. Yes, so definitely, and a lot, but I I thought about it because I knew you were going to ask this. And uh, (laughs) I have three women that I want to quote. That is Hannah Arendt, the famous uh, philosopher, and uh, she was, of course, a naughty girl. She had an affair with Heidegger, the famous philosopher who was then a Nazi philosopher. He was her uh, uh, teacher, her professor. She had an affair with him. I'm not sure you can understand Hannah Arendt if you've not studied Heidegger, for instance, but I think she is, um, we, we can learn a lot until today, especially in, in the computational area. I will give you one quote. So she says towards the end of The Human Condition, a famous book of hers, she says, I'm not afraid that behaviorism is true. I'm afraid it will become true. Mm. And there's no time to go into that, but I think it's uh, uh, precisely, it it pinpoints my concern. The second person that, that I want to put forward is a Dutch writer, author of children's books. Called Annie M. G. Schmidt. I imagine that anybody, any Dutch person who's listening, will immediately know who's Annie M. G. Schmidt. You could say that in Sweden there is Asrit Lindgen. Yeah, exactly. uh, So that would be the uh, equivalent. (laughs) So so she could have been um, uh, that woman, but I'm Dutch. Mm -hmm. And I think Annie Schmidt combines uh, boldness naughtiness, um, going your own way, being independent uh, in children's literature, while at si- the same time um, telling stories that end well. Annie Schmidt, for instance, said, any story ends well if you stop in time. Tell very wise. And she, well, she, yeah. The third person, I thought it's also good because Anne Schmidt is already dead, also, just like Hannah Arendt. So, the third person, somebody who I think is a, a role model, a fantastic person, is the rector of my university here in Brussels, Caroline Powers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and why? Why do you think that? Yes. It? Yes, that, 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 uh, that's, that's a very good question. One, because I think uh, it is fantastic that somebody is running an, a university, a woman, um, dealing with all these issues of scale, efficiency, budgets, um, big egos hanging around, of course, yeah. um, But it's also a small Flemish university with a very specific signature. So it has certain ideals about independence of research, uh, et cetera. And the way she is inspiring people. So at the same time um, uh, wanting this university to be competitive, uh, daring to go for excellence Mm -hmm. and at the same time caring making sure that people are respected. Um, and of course, a sense of humor and being able to relativize things. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's-
0: Thank you. I want question. to thank you for the, for the books of your first two references. And the last question, Professor Merele will be,
1: what is the takeaway for those listening? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep that very short. Um, my message, to all women is be kind and be bold and never see that as a contradiction. So we're going to be kind as far as I'm concerned to everybody until we have to make a point and then we're going to be bold.
0: Thank you, Professor Mireille Hildebert for being with us at the IWIB female factor podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the episode interesting. For more information, you can read the descriptions of this episode and don't forget to follow us on Instagram, IWIB underscore business network or at www.IWIB.online. Until next time. Bye-bye.